If you look back in history since World War II, we've moved into a time in, in which our culture attributes far more importance and power to the individual self than ever before. No longer do we think we have the power to merely discover moral reality and truth. We now believe and, and, and are taught that we have the power to actually create the truth we want to live in. A famous line in the opinion of the Supreme Court ruling of Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992 captures this idea very well. Quote, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of life. And with this public understanding of life, we have veered away from the understanding of an eternal cosmic order ruled by a creator, and now to that truth can be constructed according to the individual's will. It's now my truth. It's your truth. Speak your truth. Truth is relative. Really, this is seen as expressive individualism. Really, a better term, actually, I think, is sovereign self. We are sovereign self. This was best seen in the children's movie that came out a number of years ago, Frozen, right? The main song, I'm not going to sing it for you. You'll have to ride in my car on the way home with me. Let it go, right? Can't hold me back anymore. It's going to be in your head now. The song, if you've not seen it, count yourself blessed. The song is now sung by a character determined to be no longer the good girl that her family and society had wanted her to be. Instead, she will let it go and express all that's which has been hiding inside. You know, in the song, she says, there's no right, no wrong, no rules for me. This is a perfect example of the sovereign self. She will now define how her life will go. Identity is no longer understood by and for the sake of others. Instead, we become who we are for what is only good for ourselves, regardless of what anyone else says or feels. And this tragically assumes that we know what's best and that our inner desires are harmless and even logical. But if we're honest, even our deepest desires inside of us often contradict ourselves and contradict one another. See, our thoughts about ourselves are slippery. So an identity based on our feelings will always be unstable and illogical, and it will lack true and lasting joy. Without listening to truth outside of ourselves, what we will do is eventually create an illusion and we'll buy into it. It's like living in a house of mirrors. You ever been to the fair, fair and see that? You know, trying to navigate your way through, and the, but the mirrors don't really quite give you the right view of yourself. See, we need some standard, some rule from the outside for, of us to help us sort out all of the impulses that rule our inner thoughts about ourselves. We need an all-encompassing truth, and no one wants to find it. We need to find our worth in someone outside of ourselves 
or we will eventually fold in on ourselves and be crushed. All these forms of self-identity were were very much recognized and championed in the first century as well when the letter of Philippians was written. I just want to pause here. This is outside of my introduction. The meeting that we're having next Sunday night talking about these issues that are currently in our culture are prevalent and have been prevalent for hundreds of years. And so I will lay as the lead pastor a guilt trip on all of you. If you have kids, no kids, see kids, around any kids, you need to be here because this is what they're facing all the time. And it's not just kids. It's mom and dads. It's anyone in your your neighborhood. And we need to think through these things biblically, what the Bible says, compassionately, caring, because there's a struggle with this idea of identity. We're going to dive into this a little bit this morning, what Paul has here and identity and, and how we find joy from that. But I wanted to just have that caveat. As many people that are here this morning should be here next Sunday night to be a part of that discussion because I think you'll be challenged and encouraged in that. But as I said, all, all of these, these different ideas of identity and how we find our worth were, were very much present when this letter was written, the book of Philippians. And what we see in the New Testament is a young man named Saul who was once a promising rabbi, who sought his identity in his family, his resume, his inner desires to be right, and to snuff out anyone who believed differently. And then all this, as as you can read in the book of Acts, was shattered on the road of Damascus, heading, uh, mind you, on the way to kill Christians. And Saul was confronted by Jesus Christ, and God gave him the, the right understanding, the, it wasn't new necessarily, it was just the right understanding of his identity and who he was. And so in many ways, this section of Philippians is, is just this, this, this comparison back and forth of the put my confidence in the flesh to define myself and, and those who glory in Jesus Christ. And so I, it seems to me that this section seems to connect to our understanding of, of identity and joy. And this is a book about joy and rejoicing and, and finding our joy in Christ. When we put our confidence in the flesh, when we, when we boast or brag about ourselves, the result is the lack of joy in the Lord. And so I have a job for you this morning as we begin. I want you to lay aside all the identities that maybe you think about yourself, that you've brought in, you know, the identities that define you by this world. And they're not necessarily sinful, Right? Every single one of us has come in today with something that defines us. You know, you're a tired mom or or, or a quiet computer engineer or a bored student or a worn-out grandparent. Whatever it is that defines you right now, leave it and set it aside and sit beneath God's Word and let the Word define who you are and how God sees you and rejoice in that. There is joy to be found when we hear what God's Word says about who He is and what He's done for us and then who we are. So, this sermon is ultimately about joy, when it comes, where it comes from, how to protect it and how to live in it, but here's the main idea. So, if you get anything from the sermon, this is the, the thing to get. A Christian protects their joy in the Lord by boasting in Christ even when they're suffering. Three points as we walk through. We're to look out, there's no boasting allowed, and rejoice in your suffering. So, number one, Look out, 
and we will look here at verse 1, Philippians chapter 3. If you haven't turned there, turn to Philippians chapter 3 as we continue on in this book. Verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Let's pause. Right again, Paul again reminds us we are to rejoice. In fact, he commands them to here. We, we, we are to rejoice in the Lord. Sometimes we think of joy as an emotion that can only be achieved spontaneously and that it shouldn't be compelled, but that's wrong. We choose joy. And Paul emphasizes it here. Joy is a choice, not an emotional response, although sometimes it is when things go our way. But we choose to live in the joy of the Lord. Why? Because God is always good. All true joy in this life is found in the Lord. It has its source and ultimate object in Him. And Paul could rejoice in other things, but those things would fade away. There's only one thing that our joy can be in that won't fade away and won't pass away, and it's the Lord. It's who He is and what He's done. Our our circumstances might bring occasional joy, but the joy in the Lord is able to coexist with all kinds of situations that we might face in our life. And Paul is calling out to his readers to listen to his teaching. And he says, he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and safe for you. Paul is saying, you, you've heard this from me before, now listen to it again. And what we learn from that is that we're, we're rarely as mature as we think we are. We're never beyond needing the truth of Scripture to be explained to us. Uh, that is one thing that I have that's been the biggest challenge as, as leading as a pastor and preaching the Word is that I have to repeat myself a lot. And then I think, well, Jeff, if you sat there, you would need it a lot repeated for you too. We just need it repeated to us over and over because we're all slow. And Paul is saying that. We're all slow. So I'm going to repeat myself again. Rejoice in the Lord. The freshness doesn't lie in novelty, but it's in the power of the Spirit in those moments to help us to see how wonderful and how potent truth is for us today. And Paul also wants us, wants to warn them though, not just encourage them, things that they already know, he wants to warn them. And he says to look out for those that will come and take away, to seek, to take away your joy. Look at verse 2 and 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul's going to use some extraordinarily strong words here to describe those that are trying to minimize the cross. There's opposition for the church in Philippi, and they're called Judaizers, those who claim to be Christians who teach obedience to the Jewish law. These are not enemies of the people in the church. No, they're enemies of the cross. They're opposed to to the message of the gospel. And this enmity doesn't seem to be so much because of the message, but of the priorities they place. And so first, he calls them dogs. The word dog here is used as a wild dog scavenging among the filth and dirt in the streets. This is not a cute miniature poodle that you put in a purse and walk around the streets with. This is not man's best friend. These are snarling beasts on the hunt. The Judaizers whom Paul is talking about taught that in order to be pure for worship, 
God's people had engaged, needed to engage in the ritual rites of washing. And yet, dogs in their culture were, were ritually filthy. So Paul turns the table on them and calls them the very thing that they despised about those that were unclean. Second, he calls them evildoers. It's translated, I think, better as evil workers. The Judaizers taught them in order to be right with God, the people of God had engaged in the works of the law as prescribed in the Old Testament. So Paul calls them evil workers because they, they pushed work in the law for their righteousness. That you need to do something to become righteous before God. And third, he calls out their wicked practice of mutilating the flesh. Pagan priests in the Old Testament used to cut themselves in order to show their devotion to God. And the Judaizers here again were teaching that if you came to Christ, no matter your age, you had to be circumcised to be accepted by God. So why does Paul use such strong language concerning these false teachers? See, Paul saw that they were putting confidence in the flesh, confidence in their rituals and their rule keeping and their rights. And what Paul states negatively in verse 2, he states positively in verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The phrase, we are the circumcision, means that the real people of God, those who are really marked out as belonging to Him, have placed their faith in Christ, not in their works. The circumcision, which are the true people of God, are those who worship by the Spirit and therefore glory in Christ Jesus alone. Those who glory in in Jesus Christ alone cannot trust in their religious effort or rule-keeping or rights. It's the fact that when we come to Jesus Christ in faith, all of the doing of a religion and our works counts for nothing. And so Paul begins here by warning the church to, to look out, be aware, watch for those that would steal your joy by adding to salvation by the works of the law. Their identity can be found in how they perform and not how they, who they are. And so what is it now? I, I was thinking hard last night trying to, to, to try, how do we apply this? Like, and there's probably a myriad of ways we can apply it, but how do we apply this to now? How, how, what do we look out for now for those that can steal our joy, okay, right now? And I thought of a few, and I'm sure you could think of others, and just spend time around lunch, you know, adding more to this application. But one, one group of people that I think can get their joy stolen are single people. When married people come by and say, just wait till you're married, you're going to love it. When we do that to single people, we're trying to steal their joy in the Lord. Being single is not a disease. Both need to hear this, single people and married people. Single people in our congregation are not a project for you, married people. Your job isn't to come alongside and be a matchmaker. Your job is to love them and to encourage them and to point them to Jesus Christ to find their joy in the Lord. Paul was single. What an amazing ministry Paul had. He wasn't less of a person because he was single. So we need, that's one application. Another application are married people that don't have kids. And we come along and say, just wait till you have kids. 
It's so amazing. I, I love my kids, and we come alongside, and in some ways we're stealing the joy from married people that maybe perhaps can have kids. And for whatever reason God has worked in their lives, that's where they're at. So we need to be careful to not come alongside and, and direct their thoughts again to things where it doesn't need to be. They need to find their joy in the Lord where they're at now, presently. You know, the third one, I'm just going to keep on this train, is, is those that have no kids in the home and they come to people like me who are tired and just say, just you wait. You know, it's so nice, the empty nesters, you know. You can go to lunch anytime you want. You can go on vacation. It's a lot cheaper. Don't steal our joy, man. Encourage us. It's hard. You can continue to press on in that and find our joy in the Lord, not in the circumstances that we find ourselves, but somehow earning this status. We can subtly and yet painfully steal the joy of others by innocent ways, even, even here in the church family. It's not, a, it's not a bad thing to be single. Embrace it. Serve God with joy. Don't be fooled, single people, into thinking that real Christians are the ones who are married with kids. It's not true. When Christ died for you on the cross, he gave you everything through the Holy Spirit to be sufficiently, to live for him faithfully in his life. You don't need to add anything to have more joy in that way, to be accepted by God, even marriage and kids. And so be on the lookout in your own heart and mind and in, in others in the church family who, who maybe haphazardly just steal joy of others by defining identity by the world's standards or about why, why, what you think should happen. We need to be careful of this. Our, our identity can be found in how we perform, and sometimes it's found in who we are. That's why Paul moves to warn them to, to not boast in themselves, and that's the second point. No boasting allowed. Who is the, the best person you know? Not necessarily the person you look up to, but the person who, ha, who, who seems to have everything figured out. The person who, who thinks they have everything figured out. And they live confidently in that. They think they're better than you. They put so much confidence in themselves. They're boasting about their good looks or their resume. This was Apostle Paul. This is him in Acts. He was that guy. And now we, what we find through the work of God is Paul will no longer put confidence in the flesh, and he wants to challenge those who maybe aren't quite convinced. And so what he's going to do here as he walks through is Paul's going to give his resume. It's, it's as if Paul is putting together a, a profit and loss accounting sheet before us. And in the profit column, he will mark out all the work he's done in the flesh. So look at it there in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
really what Paul is saying to you is, I am better than you. I'm better than you. Mark it down, log it away. If performance, I am better than you. And Paul was better than everyone. Paul could take down anyone. He's literally in the hall of fame of religious dudes. He's at the top and there's no one else. It's just Paul. And he marks out these seven things in his life that provide confidence. He was an, he was an eight-dayer, as they would say, meaning he was circumcised on the eighth day. He's part of the people of Israel by birthright. He was the part of the tribe of Benjamin, just like King Saul, which makes me wonder why his parents named him Saul, right? Here we go. This guy's great. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning that he was the real stuff. He, he most likely spoke fluent Hebrew and came from a Hebrew family. Paul was the man. Paul was better than you, better than me. When it came to the law, yeah, he was on top. He, he performed. He was pharisaic when it came to observance of the law. He was, he was the best. But even to take a step further, Paul would not just be good at religion. He was like Michael Jordan of, of, of the Jewish faith, all right? I needed to throw a sports analogy in there to make sure but Paul would go after those that were breaking off the way, right? The, the Christians that were coming. And not just chastise them from afar. Paul was a terrorist. What comes to your mind when you think of a terrorist? That was Paul. I mean, they were filled with terror at who Saul was. He would, he would go after people to murder them. He stood in agreement in the book of Acts as they stoned Stephen to death with glee, probably. This is Saul, religiously performed in every way and, and with zeal against the church. See, Paul was the guy and he knew it. He knew he was better. And Saul was, by all accounts, righteous through his law-keeping. But the law was given in part to reveal our sinfulness, to reveal that we have ultimately dethroned God from the center of our lives, and to raise ourselves as the, the chief, the king. And so he says there, but whatever gain I had... I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Again, this is accounting language here. And it reminds us again of the shocking news of the gospel. By nature, we all assume that we are as, as good as the next person. And so therefore, we are acceptable before God as much as, as others. And, and this poor thinking leads us to believe that we've done enough good things to get into God's good graces and so that we can spend eternity with God. But the truth of it is our good works actually disqualify us from heaven. What we count as profit, God counts as loss. And, and for Paul, his whole view of himself was turned on its head. Instead of being accepted by God, he learned that he was actually rejected by God. Instead of being, gaining approval, he was re refused. The very things that he, he believed would help him were actually hurting him. See, all of his accomplishments that he could do were actually failures. 
And he looked for joy in his Jewish identity, in his pursuit of religious obedience. And then God steps in and ruins it all for his salvation. No, this is, I want you to note that this part of the letter is not a warning to us about the danger of making our own church structures and systems into a new form of workspace religion. This is not saying that church membership is bad or getting baptized is no longer needed. No, this is a warning against those who hate our claims that Jesus alone provides a right relationship with God. The world wants us to take a break from the whole notion that there's only one way for salvation. They want us to chill out about Jesus. Just take a break. But Paul wants us to be thrilled and in awe of him again, knowing that Christ is what life is all about. And anything else in this life is worthless in comparison to knowing him. To rejoice in the Lord is to continue to make a value judgment about the flesh and this world. And his goal in all of this is to inoculate us against things that might lure us away from Jesus. He continues in verse 8, indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It's, it's as if Paul is, is now saying, I've sat down and I've looked over my life and all the things that I've listed on the profit column have been now transferred to the loss column. All of the benefit that I had, had here and thought I was good, I was golden, I'm gonna get in and I'm gonna be great in God's kingdom. God says, nope, that's all bad. In fact, it's not just bad, it's worthless in comparison to Jesus Christ. He says in our, in our version, it's very tame, ESV, it's rubbish. Do we ever use that word? In England they do, not here, rubbish. The word actually means feces. Do I need to go into greater detail? The King James gets it right, dung. Poo. I want to make sure you all understand the word I'm talking about here, all right? If you change the diaper, you know what I mean. Compared to Jesus Christ, all of our, all of our good works is hot garbage. It is worthless. And not just worthless. It smells. It stinks. We need to understand that. That is, that is the gospel, friends. So what are you tempted to place above Jesus? You know, it could be your academic achievements, your career qualifications, your image, your reputation, or even how many followers you have on social media. And Paul wants us to see that all these things are completely pointless and rubbish if we don't value Jesus. See, Paul was utterly overwhelmed with the sense of futility of life without Jesus Christ. He had been building sandcastles that wouldn't stand the test of time. And his whole life 
had been built. His identity, his worth, all of this had been built in a way, and that was wiped away now, and he now find, found joy. When everything was taken away, he found joy. So, see how countercultural that is to our world? Everything that we can build up means nothing. Jesus means everything. True joy is found in Jesus Christ. And what Paul learned is that he gained more than he lost. You know, this is always on my heart. I hope it's on yours when you gather with us on Sundays. But the question remains, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you view Jesus Christ this way? Do you know the true joy of laying aside all that this world has to offer and placing all of your faith and trust and submission of life in Jesus Christ? Are you committed to Jesus or do you have a foot in each camp? See, to to know Jesus Christ means to be fully devoted to Him. Now, are we going to do that perfectly all the time? Absolutely not. That's why he, one of the reasons you come to church. To be reminded of this, to be encouraged. It's never easy. See, we, go, we leave this time, this morning, uh, around noon-ish, and we go back into the world for another six days plus to be told that your joy should be in other things than Jesus. That's why it's so important to gather with God's church. They want to define you differently than what the Scriptures have, but there's more joy and peace when we find our, our identity and we realize our identity in Jesus Christ. See, Paul could, could now, now he could look back over his life and he could see how miserable he actually was when he was trusting in himself. He, he could see how his mind was focused on himself and his needs. But the mind of Jesus, which didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and is worked out in chapter 2 as counting others as more significant than yourself, is now seen here counting everything that could potentially be trusted in as loss. And Paul counts his loss. And so he gives up everything for Jesus because he knows he gains so much more. Friend, it might be, it might be really worthwhile this week to sit down and, and draw up profit and loss, the two columns there, and, and look at your life. See, Paul says, I count everything as loss. And so you put everything down there, family, friends, career, possessions, holidays, hobbies, achievements, and read over the list. And what does Paul say about that list? The answer is in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything. And for his sake, I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. There is nothing in this world that's worth missing out on Jesus Christ. Nothing. 
And when we gain Christ, we gain joy. And with his joy, we're finally able, and, and number three, to rejoice in our sufferings. Paul ends the discussion here. He's going to explain why the confidence in the flesh must be done away with by showing what it means to gain and to know Christ. Look at verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, to gain and know Christ involves righteousness, relationship, and resurrection here in these three verses. First is righteousness there in verse 9. Righteousness explains what it means to gain Christ. It involves being found in Him, being united with Him now, and, and being fully united with Him on that day. And the righteousness that comes from obeying the law is, is now contrasted with the righteousness that depends on faith and that comes from God. And, and the center of this status is being rightly connected to Christ, not through your own faithfulness, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the one who perfectly obeyed the Father and now shares what He, what he is with those who have faith in Him. Where we are faithless, Jesus was faithful. Where we are disobedient, Jesus was disobedient. Where our best efforts at righteousness are always flawed, Jesus' righteousness is perfect in every way. This is what we read earlier, what Pastor Chris read in, in Isaiah chapter 53 of, of giving us the picture again of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And to be, to be made righteous is to be made right with God. And it is what happens when God's judgment on the imperfect record of our sinful deeds is paid by Jesus Christ. And at the same time, the perfect record of His sinless life is credited to us. To be declared righteous by God is to be declared perfect before Him. Isn't this astounding? Maybe you're tired. It's okay. God still loves you. But it, it's astounding to pause and think through. Our justification is full because it gives us Christ's righteousness. And it's final because it does not depend on us keeping the law. But it's God's gift to us through His Son. And so, from God's Word, it cannot be reversed. It can never be destroyed. It's invincible. And so this understands, and this probably helps you understand, at least for me, the sense of joy and rejoicing and thankfulness and praise that Paul experiences from knowing Jesus Christ because he's now been redeemed. All the life that he spent, the years he poured into that life was rubbish, but, but Christ came and redeemed him. But God chose him. And God didn't choose him because he was so great. He just chose him. And, and he brings him into relationship now. The second thing, and in verse 9, enlarges on the experience of gaining Christ. Verse 10, enlarges on the experience of knowing him. If you remember back in chapter 1, Paul's prayer in verses 1, 9 through 11, is the Philippians' love may abound in knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve what is best. And so, 
They're, they're pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And here, this knowledge is described in far more personal terms. It's not just about the decisions you make, but the relationship you have. It's the believer's experience of Jesus' own death and resurrection. See, knowing Christ means knowing the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings in everyday events in our life. And these things can't be separated. And the power of His resurrection is known and experienced through the experience of sharing in His sufferings. And this is an inescapable part of being a Christian. We will suffer. Back in in chapter 1, verse 29, Paul describes believing in Jesus and suffering for His sake as a gift given to believers. Suffering's a gift. And then here in 3.10, it's described as becoming like Him in His death. See, Paul counts it as an honor to share Christ's sufferings. And, And to do this means we enter into, enter into a deeper relationship with Him. And so Paul is saying, I want to know Him more. So what is he saying? I want to suffer more so that I understand Him. Why, that does not fly in a lot of religious circles right now. Right? Come suffer with us so that we can know Jesus Christ more. See, we're given this opportunity every time we're tempted to sin, to love something else more than we love God. Oh, that we would share in His sufferings. This verse actually reads to to co-partner in His suffering and is transformed in His death. See, we're partners again. This gospel is about partnership. And we need to understand that Paul's gospel is not a prosperity gospel, but an adversity gospel, a suffering gospel. And to rejoice in Jesus is to be a partner in Jesus' sufferings right up to the point of death. This means that in some places and sometimes we have to become like him in his death. And we put to death those things that don't bring honor and glory to him. Is most certainly true of Paul as he writes this letter from where? Prison. For preaching the gospel. A similar theme in 2 Corinthians 4 when Paul talks about bearing his body the death of Jesus. Their, their suffering was connected to proclaiming the gospel. So those specifics won't necessarily be something that every Christian will experience all the time. And yet there's there's opportunities, there's suffering that we experience as Christians. And it's going the way of the cross, counting all things loss in order that we may gain Jesus. And in chapter 2, it's counting self as nothing for the sake of others. It, it's, it's putting others in front of ourselves. But isn't that like a death in some ways? putting other people's needs in front of ours, willing to, to, to walk with them when it's really hard and you think, man, they should get this. Why don't they get this? It's dying to self in those moments. 
This is, this is suffering for us in some ways, in small ways, but in very significant ways. It's focusing on the glory of Jesus and the progress of the gospel and the progress of other Christians that we live among at the cost of our own selves and our own status and our own prestige and glory. And, and, and in this suffering, that's the means that God uses to transform us to be like Jesus. And so, I encourage you, friends, come suffer with us so that you can know Jesus more and become more like Jesus. So, first we receive His righteousness, then we have relationship, last is resurrection. Knowing Jesus has its roots in the past because we are trusting in His death for righteousness instead of our works. And yet it has implications very much so in the present and involves sharing in his sufferings and experiencing his resurrection power through them as we become more like him. But it also has ongoing consequences for the future. Paul knows that his past decisions and present lifestyle as he trusts in Jesus and he shares with him that will lead us to a future glory. And however it may happen, he will gain resurrection from the dead. He will share in his glory. So when Paul says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection from the dead is a technical term that refers to the final judgment day and to be being with Jesus in his perfect new heaven and new earth. And we use the term heaven as shorthand to speak of a physical resurrection of all believers to be with Jesus in his perfect new creation. To know Jesus is to delight in Jesus and to find our joy in him is to rejoice in a present status that guarantees our future state to be spent with him forever. Friend, if you're a Christian here, you will attain resurrection from the dead. Go ahead and chew on that for the rest of the day. You will die, most likely, and God will bring you back. There's no one like God, and we will forever live with him. These are incredible promises that God gives us through His words. So I need to conclude. You know, as I said at the beginning, talking about our identity, we're all looking to understand, I think, this world especially, looking to understand and live out our identity, to find our identity. And, And Saul was doing the same before Christ stepped in. But we need to understand that our identity is not achieved, our identity is received. And in the gospel, through the work of Christ, our identity is revealed to be something greater than we could ever imagine. It's not achieved through our performance of social roles or through us fulfilling the religious law. It is through the ultimate recognition, the approval of God that he sees us through Jesus Christ. It is, as he says in verse 9, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so it comes only when we repent and admit that we are far worse than we ever imagined that we can become justified and adopted and united in Christ. And when that happens, we we finally realize that we are far more loved and accepted than we could ever hope for. The Christian 
Identity creates then a profound humility, and it gives us an infinite love and sense of worth that the world could never give. Knowing Christ gives us peace that truly passes all understanding. See, the, the question for us and for those in this world is not who am I, but whose am I? Who do I belong to? That's the question. So whose are you? Do you know the Lord? Have you submitted your life to him? Friend, today is the day of salvation. And and I implore you to turn from trusting in yourself and trust in Christ alone. And Christians this morning continue to hold fast to the Lord. Trust in him today. Look at the cross. Contemplate all that Christ has done to make you who you are, his child, and find your rest there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross on which the Prince of Glory died. We recognize that all that we could do here on earth could never earn your approval or love. And it's only through the shed blood of Jesus that we can have peace with you. And so we, we ask you to help us now. Help us to love you and to hate sin. We pray that you would not give us spirits that are resigned to our sins, but a deep joy in the certainty of the hope that you have set before us, that beyond the tomb the crown awaits. So teach our hearts what it means to rejoice in you, in who you are, and in your good plans for us, even in the midst of suffering. Teach us as only your spirit can. So we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.